Thank you, Your Grace, for your kind words of introduction, your invitation to be here this evening, and thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, you can hear I'm not from America. Yes, I've been in America, I know, 23 years, but I'm actually from England. Okay? Um, I realized after a while that it really was beneficial to keep my English accent in America because I knew that whatever I would say, it would sound intelligent. <laughs> It's such a benefit to have that. Okay, so I've been in America for 23 years, still sound intelligent, wonderful. Um, I, was finished, I, I, was, I grew up in England, my father was a priest, I'm from the Russian tradition, my brother's a high monk in Mount Athos, my sister's married to a priest, um, come from a long line of the church. I grew up in the church, ended up doing my doctoral work in Oxford with Metropolitan Callistos Ware, and I'm really thankful for him for directing me to do my doctoral work on St. Irenaeus of Lyon, a second century writer from Asia Minor, he's in France, and he's really, I think, the best writer altogether. I mean, the later fathers are okay, but he's really the best. With him, we have absolutely everything already there spoken about. Um, but there are two things which I particularly have got from him and I think are especially important for us today. And one is, with him, we begin to see how Christian theology works, how, what kind of discourse it is, how it speaks. We really see him speaking Christian theology for the first time. Yes, before that, obviously, we've got the apostles, we've got the evangelists, we've got St. Ignatius of Antioch writing letters, but with Irenaeus, we've got the full theological scope quoting all the books of the New Testament of Scripture, using a canon, a creed, appealing to apostolic tradition, appealing to apostolic succession, all these different things with a vision of creation from the, of, from the beginning to the very end, from the um, book of Genesis to the eschaton. Okay? All of that's there with him. Um, so what is Christian theology? And I think that in today's world, as we're increasingly in a post-Christian world, we no longer share Christian presuppositions with society at large. We actually stand to learn more from going back to that really early period, just to understand how we talk and what we're talking about. First point. The second point is his understanding of the human being. Um, you know, he says, he's got, he's got some really beautiful lines, and one of the lines which he says halfway through his work, is something, it's exactly this. He says, the glory of God is a living human being. It's just beautiful. The glory of God is a living human being. He doesn't say human beings were created to glorify God. Well, yes, obviously we are. But he actually turns it around and says, the very glory of God is a living human being. It's really beautiful. I think it's the most profound word said by any of the fathers. Of course, the question is, well, what does he mean by a living human being? And what he doesn't mean is what we speak about today, especially in America. Live life to the full. Be all that you can be. All those kind of sayings that we have in our culture today. He doesn't mean that at all. So what does he mean? And clearly, what it means to be a human being is one of the biggest issues for us today. Yeah? In, in so many different ways, what it is to be human. Okay? We've got all kind of transhumanism, post-humanism, a whole bunch of weird and wonderful things going on. So two things from the ancient church that I've been working with the last 20 years or so, and then I'm going to explore some of those themes with you today. 
And then when we get to the end of it, I'm also going to maybe, depending on where we've got time and depending on your patience, talk about some things with regard to our culture and how what we found is at odds with our culture. Okay? So I'm going to start with the ancient church, move to the modern church. In all of this, however, I know that some of you have heard me speak before. Okay? I know that some of you have heard me speak over the last couple of days. Some of you have heard me speak on YouTube and so on. And as you'll soon see, I like asking you questions because I want to see you think. So if you've heard me talk over the last couple of days on YouTube and you've heard me ask these questions, don't answer. Let other people answer. The point is not to show me that you remember what I said two days ago. If you don't remember, well, I'm in trouble. Yeah? But I want to help to just get our thinking going. Okay, so let's start. Um, you've all got a handout, yes? Has everybody got a handout? We're going to look closely at the text on this sheet. I always give a handout when I give a talk because I want to make sure that everybody takes away something from the talk. Okay. So you've actually got something to take away from the talk, whatever I may say. Okay, um, the first letter, the first quotation, don't, don't read through it just yet, just listen to me. The first quotation on the sheet is from the letter of the churches of Vienne and Lyon to Asia and Phrygia. It's preserved by Eusebius, H-E means Historia Ecclesia, okay, the history of the church, uh, Historia Ecclesiastica. Um, the letter is almost certainly written by Irenaeus of Lyon. Okay, he came from Asia Minor. He was a disciple of Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was a disciple of John, all going to be important later. He came from that background. He ended up in Rome, probably in the, went with Polycarp to Rome about 155, went further on to Gaul, ended up being a bishop in Gaul in Lyon. First he was in Vienne, then he was in Lyon. In the year 177... So 177 AD, there was a massive persecution of Christians in that region. Okay? And it's the first real persecution of Christians. Before that, we've got martyrs, but they're all individual martyrs. St. Ignatius, taken from Antioch to Rome to be martyred. Justin was martyred. Polycarp was martyred. Individual figures all around the Mediterranean. What we have here for the first time is the whole of the city persecuted the Christians and took them all to the arena. Okay, to the amphitheater. Then Irenaeus, right, I'm, I'm certain, it's, it's not actually said it's by Irenaeus, but you can take my word for it. It's by Irenaeus. And we can take it as an author of the letter. He wrote what he saw back to the Christians in Asia Minor and Phrygia. Okay, the, a lot of the Christians in Lyon were from Asia Minor and Phrygia, trade routes, immigration routes, all the rest of it. So he wrote back to tell their brethren back at home what had been happening. The letter was also sent to Rome so that they would know what's happening. Okay? So that's the context of the letter. Now, in the letter, which is preserved by Eusebius, book 5, chapter 1, it's fairly long, it's about 30 pages long. In that letter, the heroine of the whole account is Blandina. Okay? She's, she's a young female slave, probably about 12, 13 years old, Female and a slave. She, and she, she's my heroine. I, I really wanted to call my daughter Blandina when we finally had a daughter, but my wife wouldn't have it. And she said, you know, Blandina just doesn't sound right in American. You know, it'd be nicknamed shortened to Bland, Bland, Blandina, something like that. It's not right. Never mind. Um, she still is my heroine. More space is devoted to her than anybody else in the whole account. 
She's a slave. Her, her mistress is Christian, but she's not even named. It's just her mistress, dot, dot, dot. Yeah? Her mistress is not named. Blandina's named. Okay? So the first question for you is, why is it important that Blandina, to whom most attention is given in the letter, is a young female slave? Why is that important? Yes. Okay, so you, you, there, there, there was a step before jumping to that, and the step before that is what? Young female slave. In terms of the ancient world, young female slave, she would be the weakest of the weak, yeah? The, the lowest of the low. Okay, so the, the register, she's the weakest of the weak, lowest of the low. But to think about it, I'm not going to take you up. Why would, just hold it for a minute, why would it be important that she's the weakest of the weak? Why would that be important? Somebody else, I, I know you know. Why, why would it be important that she's the weakest of the weak? Okay, what's the scriptural reference? <laughs> okay, I want you to start thinking scripturally. Okay, you, you're right, you're both right. Pardon? What's the actual word said there? What's, what's, what's the context? Okay, one, one can make it even more specific. Paul's got a thorn in the flesh. He beseeches Christ to remove the thorn. And what does Christ tell Paul? My strength is made perfect in weakness. So if she's the weakest of the weak, she then becomes the vessel for the strength of God in the most perfect form. Okay? So it describes for many pages about how she's being brutalized. Yeah? How she's being beaten up in the arena over many days, and during this time, the gladiators become exhausted, she doesn't. Strength and weakness, yeah? The strength and the weakness of human flesh is more powerful than that of the gladiators, okay? It carries on like this, and then we get to the passage we got on our sheet. So let's read the passage on the sheet together. It says, Blandina hung upon a stake, epixilu, what does that mean and what's the reference? Epixilu. Stake. What's, but the word xilu in Greek. Xilos. Wood. Wood. Cross. Okay. Blandina hung upon a stake, upon the wood, upon the cross, was offered as food for the wild beasts that were let in. She, by being seen hanging in the form of a cross, by her vigorous prayer, Cause great zeal in the contestants, as in their struggle they beheld with their outward eyes through the sister him who was crucified for them. That he might persuade those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for the glory of Christ has forever communion with the living God. The small, weak, despised, notice the emphasis, small, weak, despised woman have put on the great and invincible athlete Christ. And routing the adversary in many bouts and through the struggle being crowned with the crown of incorruptibility. Okay? So she's in the amphitheater, in the arena, hanging upon the wood, 
in the form of a cross. And she is seen as a, not only as a vessel of God's strength, strength made manifest in weakness, but she's seen as a very embodiment of Christ. Looking at her, they saw in their sister the one who's crucified for them. It's really dramatic language. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. After all, it's what it says, you know. It's not difficult, although I'm going to start asking questions. And the first question is, who sees her in the image of Christ? Who sees her in the image of Christ? Who sees her? Pardon? Meaning who? Right, the people about to be persecuted. It says, if you look at what it says, it says, she caused great zeal in the contestants, as in their struggle, they beheld in a sister the one who's crucified. Yeah? It's, it's not just simply true Christians, it is the contestants who are in the arena alongside her. Okay? Now, why is it important to be very clear about that point? Where do you have to be to see Blandina as an image of Christ? Where do you have to be? You have to be in the arena, yeah? You have to be down there in the amphitheater with her in order to see her. If you're sitting up in the amphitheater in the seats, looking down, what do you see? What do you see? What? No, what would you see? I'm asking, what would you see if you're sitting in the, in, as a good Roman citizen, sitting down there, what would you see? You'd see a victim. You'd see a 14, 13-year-old girl being brutalized for your amusement, yeah? being killed for your amusement. So if you want to see her as an image of Christ, you've got to be in the arena. Okay, is that clear? Is that clear? What? I, I'm not, it doesn't say anything about emotion. It just says, those in the arena looked at her as the image of Christ, as the embodiment of Christ, and by looking at her as the embodiment of Christ, they are given impetus, they're given zeal, they're given strength. Okay? Okay, are we clear about that? Where you've got to be? Okay, let's ask the question again. Who sees her as the image of Christ? Who, see, who, see, you've heard me. Who, who, who sees her as the image of Christ? Pardon? Well, we just had that. We've just said that. We've just said that. And the gladiators, where do you get the idea that the gladiators look at her as the image of Christ? We said those in the arena, those being persecuted as well, they look at her, yeah? That's the first answer. I'm asking the question again, and I want a different answer. Okay? Who sees her as the image of Christ? Where do you get that from? You're making it up. <laughs> I don't mean to embarrass you, but you're making it up. Where do you get it from? Who sees her as the image of Christ? Who sees her as the image of Christ? No, not the sister. It says, she caused great zeal in the contestants as in their struggle they beheld with their eyes... Through the sister, Blandina. Yeah? She's a sister to the other Christians. Okay? Who sees her as an image of Christ? 
the writer of the letter, Irenaeus. Yeah? It's not the wild beasts, it's not the gladiators. I mean, it doesn't say anything about that. But it is literally the author of the letter is the one who's writing this. It's St. Irenaeus of Lyon with his theological vision, his understanding of theology, his understanding of how God works in Christ, he's able to look at this spectacle and put it in these words. Yeah, He's the one who tells us that the people in the arena saw her as the image of Christ. Okay? It's the writer of the letter. Are you with me? You sure? Nobody knew that. A few people knew that, but no... Okay, so you're definitely sure. Okay, let me ask the question again. Who sees her as the image of Christ? Just turn it around slightly. Just be be a bit more... Two words. The reader. The reader. The reader of the letter is the one who sees her. We are the ones who see her. Yeah? We are the ones who, by virtue of Irenaeus' letter, can look at Blandina and say she's the image of Christ. Christ is embodied in her. Yeah? What Irenaeus has done is, if you like, give us a verbal icon of Christ. He's depicted her as an icon, as an image of Christ. He's done that in his words so that we are able to look at her and we are the ones who look at her and see the image of Christ. Yes? Are you sure you're with me? The three steps that we've had to go. You've got to be in the arena. As we reflect on the text again, we actually have to recognize it's the author of the letter. After all, we only know what those in the arena saw because the author tells us. Yeah? And then as we reflect again, once we recognize it's the author of the letter who sees this, we can then conclude, well, in fact, it's us who see it, the readers of the letter. Are you sure we're good on this? This is just a warm-up exercise. Okay, it's just warm-up. Okay? No, just think what happened. Just think, think what's just happened. We said a few minutes ago, if we had been sitting in the amphitheater, what would we have seen? We would have seen a girl being brutalized for our amusement. Yeah? Had we been there on the day, that's what we would have seen. But now, 2,000 years later, we are the ones who are looking at Blandina and seeing her as the image of Christ. Yeah? The 2,000 years have just been jumped over. We are the ones who are looking at her. Had we been there on the day, we wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, what's going on with that? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah? Had we been there at the day, we would have seen a, a young girl being killed for our amusement. We might have been led to say, well, why would she do that? And we might have been led to conversion by that. But had we been sitting there, we wouldn't have had the categories to know she's the image of Christ. Yeah? But now, 2,000 years later, we're the ones who are looking at her. Okay? So time, we've just transcended 2,000 years of time, just like that. Okay? Are you with me? Okay? You don't mind time travel. Okay. Okay, the letter then carries on about how she's brutalized on the cross and so on. And then it continues um, with the next part of that quotation. Now, when it says, through their continued life, the their, their, 
plural, it means Blandina and Atullus. A young, a young slave boy called Atullus, the two of them, okay? And now look, look at this sentence. This is, this is just really striking. Through their continued life, the dead were made alive, and the martyrs showed favor to those who had failed to witness. And there was great joy for the virgin mother in receiving back alive those whom she had miscarried as dead. For through them, the majority of those who were denied were again brought to birth, again conceived, again brought to life, and learned to confess, and now living in strength, and they went to the judgment seat. Okay? Through their continued life, the dead were made alive. Who are the dead who are made alive? Who are the dead who are made alive? No, look at, no, you're making it up again. I want you to read the text. It's only, what, four lines long. Read the text and tell me who the dead are made of. Students at St. Vladimir's get really frustrated with me. I ask a question, and they give me a high theological answer. Yeah? And actually, all I want, I'm a really pedestrian thinker. I'm a really that-level thinker, Okay. All I want you to do is to tell me what the text says. Read the text, think about it, and think about what's going on. More often than, I did see around ago, more often than not, we, we read the text and we don't read it, we read it, our eyes gloss over, and then we start thinking about something different. Yeah? Um, so, in this case, the dead are made alive. Who are the dead? No, it's very specific. What? Those who had failed to witness, those who were in the arena and whose strength was, whose faith was not strong enough that they backed down. They sacrificed to the Roman gods, they did whatever had to be done, they, they backed down, yeah? And backing down from their martyrdom, from what was expected of them, backing down from their martyrdom, they are, as the text says, stillborn children. Yeah? They are still, they are dead on birth. They don't even come to birth. They don't come to life. They are dead. They are stillborn children of the Virgin Mother. I'll come back to the Virgin Mother in a minute. Okay? So the dead who are made alive are those who had failed to witness. Yeah? And, and then, so go back to the beginning of the sentence, through their continued life. What does that mean? through the continued life of Blandina and Atullus. What does their continued life mean? Just think about what we just saw, life and death. The dead are made alive. The dead are the ones who now are stillborn children of the Virgin Mother. They come back to, to, to martyrdom. Through their continued life, it means Blandina and Atullus' martyrdom. Yeah? Through their continued life, the dead were made alive. The dead who had failed to witness are now brought back to martyrdom, brought back to life. Yeah? And so there's great joy for the virgin mother in receiving back alive those whom she had failed to carry to, to birth and to life. Okay? So again she conceived, again she brought to life, again she brought to, to birth, and again they, they now learnt to confess, and now, now that they've learnt to confess, they are living and strengthened, and they go to the judgment seat. So death and life have been completely reversed. Yeah? Throughout the whole passage, consistently. Death and life are completely reversed. And then finally on this passage, who is a virgin mother? 
Who's the Virgin Mother here? Irenaeus, writing 177, he just says simply, the Virgin Mother gives, has great joy. Pardon? Could be Blandina. She's a virgin, she's encouraging them, she's, she's bringing them, but there's, there's a further reference. The church. It's simply, the church is the virgin mother in whom the martyrs are born into life. And it doesn't say reborn, it's simply born into life. Okay. Okay, are your brains starting to work? Okay. So let's go back a further 50 or 60 years to St. Ignatius. And we find the same thing going on here, but perhaps in, in an even more interesting way. Okay, now that we've, you know, had a warm-up exercise, let's go to the next text. This is Saint Ig- quotation number two. This is St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius, either around the year 105 or 130, there's kind of different dating for it, he's taken from Antioch to Rome to be martyred. Okay? And he's taken by foot, and he's taken with soldiers taking him all the way. And along the way, he meets various Christians from different communities across Asia Minor, and he writes letters to their leaders, okay? to, the, to the Christian churches, in Tralles, in Philadelphia, in all sorts of other places. And then he writes a letter to the Christians in Rome before he gets there. He writes a letter to the Christians in Rome, and basically he, he says in that letter, whatever you do... Don't try and get me out of being martyred. Yeah? Don't, don't bribe the judges to let me off. Don't try and seduce me and you know, hold me back. Okay? Don't try and stop me being martyred. So quotation number two. He says, It's better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. That's suffer in a sense of allow. Allow me, my brethren. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I shall become a human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion of my God. Okay? So... Hinder me not from living by trying to get me out of my martyrdom. Life and death are again reversed, yeah? He wants to come to life, and he's fearful that the Christians in Rome will try and hold him back from martyrdom and um, wish him to die by getting him out of his martyrdom. Again, life and death are completely reversed, yeah? Just simply reversed. Hinder me not from living by getting me out of my martyrdom. Do not wish me to die by keeping me alive in this world. Um, birth pangs are upon me he's not yet born he's not yet living and he says when I come to my martyrdom I will receive the pure light when I shall have arrived there I shall become a human being he's not yet born he's not yet living and he's not yet human what on earth is going on with that he's not yet born he's not yet living he's not yet human um and he's writing all of this whilst under guard being taken from Antioch to Rome, jotting it down. He's not sitting in a, in a big theological library in an ivory tower, working out how the whole thing holds together and you know, describing a whole theology. He just writes it down without, without even thinking about it, just, just jots it down. Yeah? Not yet born, not yet living, not yet human. Okay? The manifest testimony of the early church 
is that we only come to life through martyrdom. We're not yet living and we're not yet born. We talk about the martyrdom, the, the, the death of the martyrs as being what? Their birth. Yeah? From the earliest times, the death of the martyrs is their birth. Not their rebirth, their birth. Okay? So what does it mean then? What would it mean to think consistently like the early fathers did? That we are not yet born, we are not yet living, we're not yet human. What would, that, what would it mean to think like that? Where does that come from, and what would it mean to think like that? Well, on the one hand, it's actually really quite easy to start to think like that, because when you reflect about it, we think that we are free-living human beings. Who here doesn't think that they're free-living human beings? Now, we all think we're free-living human beings. But think about it. Do you really have freedom? Yeah? There's a line in one of Dostoevsky's novels called The Possessed, where one of the characters says, nobody asked me if I wanted to be born. Yeah? Nobody asked me if I wanted to come to this world. I've got no choice about the matter. Yes, we think we've got freedom because I can choose between having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. You know? And we think we're free because we can choose between one or the other, as if that freedom really amounts to anything. I've got no freedom about my existence. I was thrown into the world. No choice about the matter whatsoever. No freedom. Yeah? And I'm thrown into the world in a way in which whatever I do, I will die. Yeah? No matter how good you behave, no matter how healthily you eat, no matter how whatever, whatever, whatever it might be, guess what? You're going to die. You're as good as dead. You've got no freedom and you're dead. Okay? We, see where I'm coming. we see where it's coming from. It's really quite, quite obvious, quite straightforward. You've got no freedom and you're dead. Okay? The question about the human being is kind of interesting, but we'll get to that. But you can see immediately how one might think. You've got no freedom, you're dead. Whatever you do, you will die. You have no choice about the matter. You're thrown into the world with no choice, into an existence in which whatever you do, you will die, period. Okay. I, I hope I'm not breaking some bad news to anybody here. <laughs> If you haven't thought about that already, mm, yes. Okay, we, we, we've yet to get there, we've yet to get there. Okay, so I want to reflect, take a step back further. We, we went from Irenaeus in 177 to Ignatius in 107. The background for all of this, and especially the idea about becoming a human being, lies actually, obviously, in the Gospels. Okay? Clearly it lies in the Gospels. question of life and death, conquering death by death, all that kind of thing, lies in the Gospels. But in order to be very specific about how that's so, um, I mentioned that Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, was a disciple of John. There's something very particular about John's Gospel, which I think will take us further into all of this. But before we do that, we have to understand the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in order to understand the Gospel of John. Okay, so are your minds warm, warmed up? Okay, so let's think about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels because they're all in parallel. Okay? The, the, the stories are pretty much in parallel, they're told in the same kind of way and so on. For me, the most striking fact about the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I know I'm standing in the middle of the church, we've got icons of the saints all around us, and including the, the holy evangelists and apostles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
But never mind. The most striking fact about the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is how slow the disciples are. Really, really slow. It's not me saying that. Christ says it in the Gospels. How slow are you? How long do I have to put up with you? Don't you get it? Yeah? Think about it. They are with Christ. What, for three years? For, for, you know, all that time, daily with him. They've no doubt met his mother and whatever she's got to tell him about him. Yeah? They've heard all the teachings that he's giving, the Sermon on the Mount and all the other things. They see him working various miracles, you know, multiplying loaves, healing the sick. They see him transfigured on the mountain. They see all of this. But do they understand who he is? Do they understand who he is? Do they? There's one place before the Passion where one of the disciples makes a, conf- a full confession of faith about who Christ is. Who and where? Peter, where? Pardon? On, on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Okay. No, that's, that, if I were to go to the road to Caesarea Philippi, would I find it? No. <laughs> okay, I, again, I'm trying to show you how to think in a particular way. If I go to that geographical stretch of land on the road to Caesarea Philippi, I will not find it. Where do I find it? In Matthew 16. <laughs> this is an obvious question. Again, I'm a really p- pedestrian thinker. Yeah? If I want to find where Peter, where Peter confesses about Christ, it's Matthew 16, and then the other Gospels as well. Okay? Now, the reason for being very specific, I don't mean to put you on the spot or anything, um, is to make you think scripturally, not geographically. Scripture, it's Matthew 16. Okay? And now, knowing it's Matthew 16, we can go through the dialogue in Matthew 16. What happens in Matthew 16? Christ starts off by saying, who do men say that I am? And, oh, you're looking at your Bible, that's not fair. (laughs) That's not fair. Okay, he starts by saying, who do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're the prophet, and so on and so on. Then Christ turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Great confession of faith. Then what happens? What does Christ say? Before that, somebody, no, before that, he says, you did not know this by flesh and blood, but by revelation from the Father. Again, we're back to that question of flesh and blood. Had we been there in the amphitheater, we would have looked at Blandina and seen flesh and blood. Yeah? Christ is now telling Peter, you did not know this, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, by flesh and blood. It's not by physically seeing me. Six foot tall, five foot tall, 100 pounds, 200 pounds, whatever it might be, crooked nose, you know, whatever it might be. Okay? Not by seeing this, but by a revelation from the Father, an apocalypse of the Father. Yeah? Pardon? Well, it's, never, it's a revelation from the Father. Okay? That, that, that by which you know it. And then what does Christ say to Peter? Yeah, you are Peter, Petros, on this rock I'll build my church. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose, will be bound and loosed in heaven. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Okay? Then what does he say? By the way, Peter, I've got to go to Jerusalem to suffer. And what does Peter say? No, that's not what he said. If only he had. <laughs> he says, that will never happen. I'm not going to let that happen. And what does Christ say? Get behind me, Satan. Just think about it. The only disciple before the passion, the only disciple before the passion who makes this confession of faith about who Christ is and has then said, I'm going to build my church on you. The gates of hell will not prevail. You're Satan. He doesn't say, Peter, stop being tempted by Satan. Yeah, or Satan, get out of Peter, or something like that. He says, get behind me, Satan. Okay? Why does he address Peter that way? Because Peter tried to stop Christ going to suffer. Yeah? You can really say that Satan is anyone who gets between Christ and the cross. Trying to understand Christ in any other way, Satan. You're dividing, you're separating Christ from the cross. Okay, so the one time before the passion, when one of the disciples makes a full confession of faith about who Christ is and is told you did not know it by flesh and blood but by revelation from the Father, he's misunderstood. Okay? It's the exception which proves the rule. Okay, so the disciples just do not get it. And not only do they not get it, what happens when it comes to the passion? When they see Christ on the cross, what do they do? They run away. What does Peter do? Denies him. I don't know the man. Yeah? When it comes to seeing the empty tomb, what happens? The women turn up at the, at the tomb early in the morning, and what do they say? They say, what's happened? Yeah? They say, it's empty, and they say, what's happened? Has somebody stolen the body? They don't understand by seeing the empty tomb. The empty tomb is ambiguous. What does it mean that it's empty? Seeing an empty tomb doesn't prove anything. Has somebody stolen the body? Yeah? It takes an angel to explain the empty tomb, saying, don't you remember what he said? That he would rise from the dead, now go and tell his disciples, and that he would meet them in Galilee. The women go back and tell the disciples, and what do the disciples say? They don't believe him. You got up too early this morning. You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay? Then, when it comes... And they encounter the risen Christ. What happens? Every encounter with the risen Christ, they they start off by not recognizing him. There's always some kind of turning point. And that turning point is really essential. There's a turning point by which they come to understand him. And we could do this with every single resurrection account, but I'm just going to stick with uh, with Luke 24. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Okay? We know the account. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The risen Christ turns up. How long has it been? How long has it been? Three days? Yeah, it might be six or seven, I don't remember, but it's a short period of time. Okay. Do they recognize him? They meet the risen Christ, and not only do they not recognize him, what do they say to him? They say, Who are you? Who are you? Are you a stranger? Haven't you heard what's been going on? Haven't you heard that about this, this Jesus figure that we were following and we thought he was going to save us from Roman rule and all the rest of it? And he went and got himself killed. 
Yeah? And then some of our company went to the tomb and they found it empty. And we've got no idea what's going on. Okay, that's what they say. Okay? Obviously, I'm playing it up a little bit. I like playing it up. I like... In case you haven't gathered, I really like being provocative. I'm going to get more provocative later. But I'm doing it in order to make a point. The disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not know who Christ is by being with him, by seeing him on the cross, by seeing the empty tomb, or even by seeing the risen Jesus. You would think that seeing the risen Jesus would be enough to persuade anyone. They saw the risen Jesus, they didn't recognize him, and they start complaining to him about all the things that have been happening. Then what happens? Pardon? What happens next? He opens the scripture. Yeah, and what does the word scripture then mean? The Old Testament. Well, we now call the Old Testament, but it's simply the scripture. Okay? For the writers of the New Testament, for our creed, it's simply the scripture. He opens the scriptures and does what? Explains what? It's very specific what he says. Yeah, he opened the scripture and showed how Moses and all the prophets spoke about how the Son of Man had to suffer to enter into his glory. Okay, that's the first step. Moses and all the prophets spoke about how the Son of Man had to suffer to enter into his glory. Their hearts start to burn. They persuade him to stay the night. Then what happens? Then what happens? He breaks the bread. Yeah? And their eyes are opened in the breaking of the bread, and then what happens? As soon as they recognize him, he's gone. Yeah? As soon as they finally understand and recognize and know him, they no longer see him. Okay, now why have I gone through all of that, playing it up at such length? To make two very specific points. The first point is, how do the disciples know who Christ is? How do the disciples encounter the Son of the living God? How? Pardon? We can be much more specific now. How? Opening the scripture, breaking the bread. Okay? That's such a phenomenally important point. The way the disciples know who Christ is, who the Son of the living God is, is as the crucified and risen one who's encountered through the opening of the scriptures and the breaking of the bread. That's the only way they know. Yeah? Now, why is it important to have been very specific about that? Why, is it, why have I labored for the last 10, 15 minutes to make that point? That's what we do. When we're in church, Virgin Mother, when we're in church... What do we do? We open the scriptures, we break the bread. Yeah? We open the scriptures in the readings. So we're not talking about opening the scriptures and reading the scriptures. I'm not talking about modern exegesis. I'm talking about opening the scriptures, the readings, the homilies, the hymnography, the iconography, the ritual, the space. All of that is an opening of the scripture. Yes? The space of the church is constituted by the opening of the scripture. 
The space of the church is not simply bricks and mortar defining a, a geographical space, you know, 20 meters by 50 meters, whatever it might be. The space of the church is constituted by the opening of the scripture. The space of the church, if you like, is a matrix of scriptural fabric, hymnography, ritual, iconography, all the different things, readings, homilies, all the different things, yeah? You're with me on that point, okay? Does anybody know what the, Latin, what the word matrix comes from? It's a Latin word meaning mother, not it kind of, it actually means womb. So we talk about matrix as being kind of the interweaving of different things, yeah? Which is you know, the interweaving of the opening of the scripture, yeah? That's, what, that's where I used it. Ritual, hymnography, iconography, the whole space is a matrix like that. But the word matrix, and I use it intentionally, means womb. So when we're in church, we're in the womb of the Virgin Mother, enabling us to be born into Christ. Okay? So when we come to church, the scriptures are being opened in all these different ways, and it culminates in the breaking of the bread. And what do we do when we break the bread? What do we do when we break the bread? I'm, I'm, again, my, answer, my, my, my thought is much, much more pedestrian. We eat it. <laughs> you know, just we eat it. We consume it. Yeah? You know, we, we don't keep the, the, the consecrated bread and venerate the bread in and of itself. We keep it for the sick, but we, we, we break the bread in order to eat it. And in eating it, we become his body. Yeah? Which is why he disappears from sight. You know, if we're his body... How could I see him somewhere else? Yeah? That makes sense? Yeah? So when we are in church, we are on the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus, just like the road to Caesarea Philippi, the road to Emmaus is not defined in terms of a geographical stretch of land. The road to Emmaus is defined by the opening of the scripture and the breaking of the bread. When we're in church, we are on the road to Emmaus. Yeah? Do you remember what we saw with Blandina? Now, this is why we did Blandina, to start with. Had we been there at the time, would we have seen Blandina as an image of Christ? No. Today, 2,000 years later, we're the ones who see Blandina as the image of Christ. Do we need to be back in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to encounter Christ? No. Because the way the disciples encountered Christ is what we still do. Yeah? We are not at a disadvantage by being 2,000 years later. Would it have been an advantage for us to have been there 2,000 years ago? If you had been there 2,000 years ago, having a cup of coffee at Starbucks or whatever the coffee chain is here. I know you don't, you've only got four Starbucks in Melbourne, but that's a different question. Um, having a cup of coffee at whatever place you have your cup of coffee. In Jerusalem, 20, in the year 25 AD. Imagine yourself, 25 AD, having a cup of coffee in Jerusalem, and you saw Jesus walking down the street. Would you have said, oh, there goes the Son of God, the Word incarnate? No, you wouldn't. Occasionally, students put their hand up and say, yeah, I would. Or somebody passed it. I would do that. Well, in that case, the answer would be, you must be demonically possessed. Because only the demonically possessed are able to do that, not the disciples. And if you're demonically possessed, you better go and see the dean of students. And we've got serious issues going on here. Okay? 
So, being there back then did not enable them to encounter the risen Christ. It's only as a crucified and risen one known through the opening of the scripture, which is exactly what we do today in church. Again, the time has been totally transcended. It's collapsed, which is why every liturgical service is always in the present. Today, this is happening. Today, he takes bread, breaks it. Today, he's born. Today, he's crucified. All the rest of it. Always in the present, never in the past. Does that make sense? Okay, so the reason why... That's the first point I want to get out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, How the disciples know who Christ is. Opening of the scripture, breaking of the bread. Fundamentally important. The second point that I want to get out of it is... The second consequence from this is that it is only through the passion that they know this. The passion seen through the opening of the scriptures. It's not by seeing him working miracles. They didn't get it. They simply did not get it. Or by speaking to his mother, whatever. They simply didn't get it. It's only the, the, the turning point for their understanding is the passion. That's the turning point when seen through the opening of the scriptures. That's the turning point. Now, if we take that seriously, which we should, what it then tells us is that Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. Now, when you think about that, that's mind-blowing. Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. He doesn't show us what it is to be God by doing things we think gods do. Yeah? You know, if you ask most people what do gods do, they'll say, I don't know, throw lightning bolts, yeah? move mountains, or if I pray hard enough, maybe God will come down and get me a bigger car, or whatever. That's the kind of thing we think gods do, and we pray to these gods in order to get these kind of things. No, Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. Yeah? Now, in order to really understand that, we have to bear in mind that for the first three centuries of the church, Pascha was celebrated as a single event. After the fourth century, after Constantine, when you've got a Christianized Jerusalem, you can have a liturgy of space and time. You can go over here for the entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. You can go over here for the foot washing. You can go over here for the Last Supper. You can go over here for the crucifixion, over here for the burial, over here for ascension on the Mount of Olives. You can have a whole list of space and time. But that's not so till after the 4th century. Before that, you just have a single event called the Pascha. A way of thinking about it would be like pure white light. Imagine pure white light. Yeah? You put it through a prism... And you get a spectrum of colors. And that's really good because it enables you to appreciate each color in its distinctiveness, in its particularity. But you have to remember that it holds together as pure white light. This putting it through a prism happens over history. You You start to get Holy Week services by the 4th century. You then start to get the Feast of the Nativity. You start to get all the different feasts 
and eventually you end up with a full liturgical calendar. The church did not start with the liturgical calendar. It started with the Feast of Pascha and the Lord's Day on Sunday. Gradually it develops. Pascha. Okay, so a single event. Now we have, we now have inherited, and it's really good that we've inherited, this whole liturgical calendar. But because we've done that, we're likely to misunderstand it. How often have you heard it said, for instance, that Western Christianity focuses on the sorrow of Good Friday? Eastern Orthodoxy knows the joy of Pascha. How often have you heard that said? Yeah, more than once, I suspect, yeah? That is simply wrong. I don't know who said it, but that's simply wrong. That's like saying Christ died because he's human, but because he's God, he's able to get himself out of the grave. Well, that'd be really great for him, but it wouldn't help anybody else. Yeah? That would split apart the one Christ. Yeah? yeah. He, the human does this, the divine does that. The church is really, um, the church is very kind to us in this way. You know, the church makes sure that we spend how many days preparing for Pascha? 40 days in Lent, and then Holy Week, yeah? And a few weeks before, before Lent, just so we can make sure we really you know, get, get, get into gear before we've got the 40 days, and then we've got 40 days after Pascha to make sure we get the point. Yeah? The church is really telling us, this is the center of our faith and everything, okay? And not only that, but then the church gets us to do something really repeatedly, yeah? Quite often in the church, as you know, we do things repeatedly. And the point is that we're doing it repeatedly so that we pay attention. We really get the point. The trouble is that when we do things repeatedly, we tend to switch off. You know, we, it just becomes words. Well, what is it we do repeatedly from Pascha onwards? We sing the Paschal Chaparium. And what does it say? It says, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. How does Christ conquer death? By death. It's not Christ conquers death by resurrection. Christ conquers death by death. By dying as a human being, he shows us what it is to be God, conquering death by death. Okay? Absolutely vital. We still, even now, we celebrate the crucifixion on one day, the burial the next day. What do we call the Sunday? What do we call it as that Sunday? We call it Pascha. Yeah, we all, we say, you know, every Sunday is a day of resurrection, but it's Pascha we're celebrating. It's still that unitary feast. Christ conquers death by death. Now, why is that so important? Okay, that's, that's the point. That, so we had the knowing Christ through the opening of the scripture and the breaking of the bread, and then the centrality of the passion. Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. Why is that so important? It's important because had he shown us what it is to be God in any other way, what part could we have in it? If he'd shown us what it is to be God by, being, by throwing lightning bolts, well, I can't do that. Yeah. Had he shown us what it is to be God by being a first century Jew, well, that would be great for first century Jews. Had he shown us what it is to be God by being rich and powerful or poor and outcast, again, that would have split up humanity. Yeah? The only thing we've got in common from the beginning of the world onwards is what? That we will die. 
So what he's done, as we said earlier, I'm thrown into this world with no choice into an existence in which whatever I do, I will die. I'm a passive victim of death. Yeah? What Christ has done is to conquer death by death. He's turned death inside out so that rather than being a passive victim of death, I can actually take up my cross and die. Yeah? How do we go from Adam to Christ? Through death, through sacramental death, through baptism, by taking up our cross. Another way of putting it, this is the way that um, Paul does it, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians 15, playing of Genesis. He, he, he describes the first human being, Adam, as being animated by a breath of life. God takes a clay from the earth, breathes a breath of life into it, and he animates it with a breath. The last Adam, Christ, is not a breath of life, he's a life-giving spirit. Corinthians 15 gives us a life-giving spirit. Yeah? So we come into existence, like Adam, with a breath of life. Well, a breath is transitory. A breath will expire. A breath will end. We will exhale and we will expire. Yeah? What do we do with our breath from the very first breath we take? What does a baby do with the very first breath it takes? Cries. And what's it doing in crying? It's saying, pay attention to me. Yeah? Give me food. Give me hunger. Give me warmth. Give me comfort. Pay attention to me. Look after me. From the very first breath we do, we do everything we can to preserve our breath. Yeah? Just think about how much time we spend eating healthily, exercising, doing all the different things we can in order to extend our lives and preserve our breath. Yeah? Well, what does Christ say? The basic law of life, what does Christ say? He says, if you try and preserve your life, you will lose it. Yeah? If you try and preserve your breath... Through all of these things, you may extend it for a few moments, but you will still die. Yeah? You know, we often say, we often reduce the gospel to saying that Christ has destroyed death. Yeah? Is that really true? No, he's converted death. Is there anybody here who's not going to die? No. The, the, the better New Testament language is Christ has destroyed the fear of death that has held us bondage. From the beginning, we've been fearful about death. And what we've done is to do everything we possibly can to preserve our life. And we still do it in almost everything we do. Yeah? Try and extend our life to live healthily, exercise, eat better, um, build up a bigger... Uh, fortune that we can retire and comfort and all the other kind of things we do to preserve our life. Well, in doing that out of a fear of death, we commit ourselves ever more to death. If, on the other hand, we... So Christ says, you know, if you, if you try and preserve your life, you will die. What does he say on the other hand? If you lose your life for my sake, for the gospel, for the kingdom, for the Father, for your neighbor, if you lose your life... What? You will gain it. Yeah? So if instead of using our breath to try and preserve our life, if we use our breath to die to ourselves, to say, I'm not going to live for myself, 
I'm going to take up the cross and live for my neighbor, for Christ, for the kingdom and everything else. If we use our breath to do that, then we are already living a life which cannot be touched by death because we've entered into it through death. We've only started doing that to the extent we live by taking up the cross we are already living a life which cannot be touched by death because we've entered into it through death. Okay? So what Christ has done through the passion is turn death inside out. What was once the end and I'm a passive victim, I am now able to be uh, the one who actively uses death. Taking up the cross, dying to myself, living for my neighbor. And in doing that, you know, we saw earlier that, that I've got no freedom and I'm thrown into existence in which whatever I do, I will die. No freedom, no life. Yeah? But if we take up our cross, what we're now able to do is to voluntarily die to ourselves in an act of self-sacrificial love for our neighbor, for Christ, for the kingdom. Yeah? So we've now made freedom and love the very basis of our existence. Yeah? Well, freedom and love as a base of our existence, that is what it is to be God. God is love in this total freedom. Through death, we've got our entry into the very life of God himself. Christ has shown us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. But we can do that as well. In him. That make sense? You with me so far? Okay, so we've, we've touched on death and life and birth, all kind of things. Let's go to the Gospel of John um, and think about the Gospel of John for a minute. It's not on your sheet. Don't do a bit of um, talking out of. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. What I would say is that whatever happens, you're going to die. Okay? Death will reveal where your heart is. If your heart is attached to the things of this world, to your house, your car, your job, your family, your public image, my bicycles, my books, cheese, whatever it might be. Okay? If your heart is attached to things of this world, Death will be painful. No doubt about it. You don't even have to appeal to afterlife experiences or anything like that. Death will be painful because it will be a separation from that which you love. Let me, let me just, death will be painful because it will be a separation from that which you love. Yeah? If, on the other hand, you've learned to let go during your life and not love these things but rather love Christ, your neighbor, and so on, you'll be able to say, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Okay? And I would say that all the language that we've got in the later tradition of purgatory, of hell, of toll houses, of all the burning punishments, is a way of describing the pain that will be real if your heart is still attached to this world. Okay? Now, what happens thereafter, that's in God's hands. Okay? But that's, that, that's the point I would make. Okay? Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Um, 
So what we've seen so far in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is the disciples are with Christ, they don't understand, they come to the cross, they run away in fear. Only when the books are opened do they finally know. With the scriptures being opened, give me some examples from scripture of what that might mean. What scripture do they talk about? Moses and all the prophets spoke about how Christ had to suffer. Give me some examples. Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah 53. This is a really important point. If the disciples only come to know who Christ is through the opening of the scriptures, if you're not opening the scriptures and reading the scriptures, how do you hope to encounter Christ? Yeah, we saw that earlier. This is the reverse side of that point. If you don't do that, what? Yeah, Isaiah 53, suffering servant. Okay, uh, Exodus. The lamb being slain at the Exodus Passover as, as the Israelites left, left Egypt for, through the Red Sea. Another passage. Psalm 22. And many other psalms. And many, many other psalms, yeah? Um, another passage. Daniel in the lion's den. Another passage. Jonah. Yeah? I mean, Abraham and Isaac. All these different passages. When we come to Holy Saturday and we've got those 15 Old Testament readings... Um, pay attention. Those Old Testament readings, you know, we, we tend to get there and think, well, what are we doing reading these Old Testament readings? What have they got to do with passion, the Christ's passion? Well, they have everything to do with Christ's passion because it's through these passages that we enter into that mystery. Okay? So it's by going back to the scriptures that they could say, no, he wasn't put to death. He voluntarily went to death. Like the, the, the innocent lamb going to be slaughtered, yeah? There's a line in the liturgy of John Chrysostom which the priest says, which really captures it well. The priest says at one point in the liturgy, he says, in the night in which he was given up. How does it continue? Or rather gave himself up, yeah? That line used to bug me for years. I used to think, St. John Chrysostom, which one do you mean? Yeah? You know, if you mean the second part, well, just cut out the first part. Yeah? And then I realized, no, it's really important that you go from one to the other. In the night in which he was given up, had you been there along with Peter, you would have seen him being put to the cross and you would have run in fear because all you would have seen is him being nailed to the cross, put to death. In the light of the scriptures being open, you can say, no, he wasn't put to death. He voluntarily gave himself up. Yeah? That's a movement from history to theology. Yeah? Had you been there with a video camera, all you could have taken would have been him being put to death. But now with the scriptures being opened, exegetically you can say, no, he voluntarily went to his death for the life of the world. Okay? Are you with me? Because this is in fact where the, where the Gospel of John starts. The Gospel of John starts where the other Gospels have finished. And by that I don't mean you know, turning the pages, here's Matthew, here's Mark, oh, here's Luke, oh, here's John. No, I don't mean that. I mean, in the other Gospels, it's not till the end, the scriptures are opened. How does the Gospel of John begin? Yeah, you've got, so you've got the prologue, in the beginning is the word, word of God, and so on. And then when you get to the narrative of the Gospel, the actual account of the Gospel, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God. Why is John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God? Is it because he's seeing a fluffy white animal walking towards him? 
No, it's because he's already understanding Christ in terms of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Exodus. He's already understanding him that way. Behold, the Lamb of God. Yeah? And then you've got Philip telling Nathaniel, we found the one of whom Moses speaks in the law. Already at the beginning of the gospel, we found the one of whom Moses speaks. Yeah? And what does Christ say? He says, you think that's great? Hang around and you'll see greater things than these. Angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Okay? And then throughout the whole of the Gospel of John, it is, Christ is always the exalted Lord. It's not when he's put to death. It is when I'm ready to give myself to death. The time is not yet. When I'm ready, this will happen. Yeah? Only when I'm ready. Okay? In every page of the Gospel of John, he's saying something like, I'm from above. I've come from the Father. I've come to do the Father's will. I'm from above, from heaven. You are from below. Yeah, everywhere, throughout the whole of the Gospel of John, is like that. In the Gospel of John, there's no transfiguration. Because in the Gospel of John, we don't need a transfiguration to see the exalted Lord. He's the exalted Lord on every page. Yeah? In the Gospel of John... When it comes to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, is he sweating tears and blood like he is in the other Gospels? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's sweating tears and blood, saying, my, fa my God, um, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In the Gospel of John, is he, does, he, does he appear that way? Do you remember on Holy Thursday when we read all the Gospels in front of the cross? Remember the first Gospel reading? Well, you remember how long it is, yes? <laughs> it's really long. It's about 40 minutes long or something. Yeah? In that gospel reading, do you hear him sounding in anguish? No, he's, he's holding a high priestly prayer. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you from all eternity. I've kept them all safe in your name. Let them be one as we are one. All, all that kind of language, yeah? Very different. In fact... Matthew, Mark, and Luke says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will but you. In the Gospel of John, he says, what? Should I say, let this pass from me? No, for this reason I've come. Yeah? It's very different. We're seeing, we're seeing Christ in a very different way. This is why John's a theologian. The others are not theologians. He's a theologian. He's seeing God at work in Christ from the very beginning in all of this. In the Gospel of John, Christ ascends in glory upon the cross. Yeah? He says, when I am lifted up, then you will know I am the divine name. When I'm lifted up, then you'll know I am. That's why in, in our iconographic tradition we have on the cross the Lord of glory. Yeah? He's raised up. He's exalted in glory upon the cross. Okay? When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He ascends in glory upon the cross. Okay? Um, from the cross in the Byzantine, in the iconographic tradition, following the Gospel of John, you've got, the, you've got his mother and the beloved disciples standing at the foot of the cross. He's not abandoned. Okay? And then he bows his head, and in the Greek it says, pnevma. he hands over the spirit. Yeah? It's not, in English it's usually translated, he gave up his breath, he gave up the ghost. No, it's he hands over, 
And there's no his. It's parevake topnevma. He hands over the spirit. So in the Gospel of John, you've actually got ascension and Pentecost together in one. John holds all of this in absolute unity. Yeah? Remember what I said earlier about the pure white light? Holds it together in absolute unity. In the Gospel of John, he's crucified on a different day. Yeah? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the lamb is slain in the temple, the disciples have their Passover meal, and then the following day, Christ is crucified. In the Gospel of John, when is he crucified? He's crucified when the lamb is slain. Yeah? Why is that? Is it because they've got their times mixed up or they've got the chronology mixed up and we need to sort it out? No. The point is that from the beginning of the gospel, you've been told he's the Lamb of God. Well, if he's the Lamb of God, when's he going to be crucified? When the lambs are slain in the temple, obviously. Yeah? So he's crucified, ascends in glory, gives a spirit. From the cross, he ascends in glory upon the cross. And then from the cross, he says very different things. He doesn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I thirst that the scripture might be fulfilled. He then says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And you've got all that thing about that, you know, the mother, the virgin mother. And he doesn't say, mother, here's somebody who's now going to look after you. Now I'm gone. He says, woman, behold your son. A beloved disciple standing by the foot of the cross puts on the identity of Christ. Yeah? In that way. And then, I could spend a whole evening talking about that one, but let's just finish with this one. He then says, it's finished. Teteliste. Yeah? Not just, it's finished, it's come to an end, you know, I'm dead. It's finished. It's brought to perfection. It's completed. Well, what's brought to perfection and completed? We we tend to say, you know, the work of salvation, God's work, this, that, and the other. But I think it's actually much, much more specific. The Gospel of John is in parallel with Genesis. Okay, they both, how do they both begin? Enachi. Yeah? In the beginning. Both both texts begin in the beginning. And in fact, John is, is playing off Genesis all the way through. Okay? But think about the first chapter of Genesis. How do, what happens in the first chapter of Genesis? God says, in the, it says, in the beginning God made heaven and earth. How does he do that? He speaks everything into existence. He says, let there be light, there is light, it's good, end of the day. Let there be a firmament, there's a firmament, it is, it's good, end of the day. Let the waters be gathered, let the lands be separated, let there be plants, let there be animals, it is, it's good. He speaks everything into existence. Yeah? He speaks everything into existence with an imperative. Let it be. It is, it's good, it's done. And then having spoken everything into existence, what does he say? No. No. He does something different. Having spoken, let it be, let it be, let it be, it is, it's good, it's done. He then says, let us make. It's a project. Yeah? Everything else is spoken into existence. Let it be, let it be, let it be. It is, it's good, it's done. If you like, that's the backdrop. That's the scenery on the stage. The stage in which God is now going to work. This is his project. It's the only thing about which he deliberates. Yeah? It's the only thing he, he takes counsel. And it's said in a subjunctive, not an imperative. Let us make a human being. It's a project. Yeah? 
And I would say this is, in fact, what is finished when Christ on the cross says, Teteliste, it's finished. Okay? And the clue for that, well, we, we saw that with Ignatius, but the clue for that is just before Christ goes to the cross in the Gospel of John, and only in the Gospel of John, what does Pilate say? What does Pilate say? Idu or Anthropos. Yeah? So you've got script, behold the human being. Eke homo, behold the human being. So you've got scripture starting off, let it be, let it be, let it be, backdrop. Let us make a human being. Scripture opens with the words, let us make a human being, and it concludes with, it's finished, here's a human being. Yeah? So we can say, not only does Christ show us what, what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being, he shows us what it is to be human in the way he dies as a human being. He shows us what it is to be human. Okay? That is why Ignatius can say, only when I follow the passion of my God will I become a human being. Yeah? We do this liturgically. We actually do it liturgically. We, we, I mentioned about reading the Gospels in front of the cross of Christ. We then bury his body the following day. And look at quotation number four on your sheet. The doxasticon from Vespers on Holy Saturday. It says, when, when Christ is in the tomb, this is what we sing at the most solemn moment on Holy Saturday. We say, Moses the Great mystically prefigured this present day saying, God bless the seventh day. For this is the blessed Sabbath. This is the day of rest on which the only begotten Son of God rested from all his works. Through the economy of death, he kept the Sabbath in the flesh and returned again through the resurrection. He's granted us eternal life for he alone is good and loves mankind. It's really striking. It says, this is the blessed Sabbath. It's not saying, you know, God finished everything and rested back then and now Christ is doing something similar and he's also resting. This is the blessed Sabbath. Moses and all the prophets were speaking about Christ and his passion. Moses wrote of me, Christ says in the Gospel of John. Not Moses wrote of things that happened 10,000 years ago and I'm now later on. Moses wrote of me. Moses and all the prophets spoke about Christ's passion. This is the blessed Sabbath on which the Lord rests from all his work. So Christ is the first human being. We can say perfect human being, full human being, whatever we want to say to qualify it, but he's the first human being. And this is something which is seen all the way through the patristic tradition. Look at quotation number five from Nicholas Cabasilas, end of the Byzantine era. He says, It was for the new human being that human nature was created at the beginning. For him, mind and desire were prepared. It's not the old Adam who's a model for the new. It's not that Christ comes in the image of Adam. It's not the old Adam who's a model for the new, but the new Adam who's a model for the old. Christ is a truth. Adam's an image. Adam's a sketch. Adam's, a, as Paul says, a type of the one to come. Christ is a truth. Adam's but a type, a sketch, a preliminary model. Okay, uh, where am I? Um, for those who've known him first, like us, 
The old Adam is the archetype because of our fallen nature. You know, we come into being with a breath of life, trying to hold on to life and all the rest of it, committing ourselves to death. But for him who sees all things before they exist, the first Adam is an imitation of the second. To sum it up, the Savior first and alone showed to us the true human being who is perfect on account of both character and life and in all other respects. Okay? So if we're going to say Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being, he also shows us what it is to be human. To be human in that sense, as Christ shows us, as as, um, Ignatius shows us, to be human is to live in Christ. To live by not living for myself, trying to hold on to my breath of life, committing myself to death, but rather to be human is to no longer live for myself, but to live for my neighbor, to live for Christ, to live for the gospel. That's what it is to be human. Yeah? To, li- to voluntarily live a life of self-sacrificial love. That's what it is to be human. Now, one can take kind of a further step with that and say, actually, God could not say, let there be a human being. Because if you said, let there be a human being, it wouldn't be voluntary self-sacrificial love. You know, it'd be, you, you're created and that's what you do, yeah? So he has to say, let us make a human being, and it's a long project which finishes in Christ. Okay? Um, so that also then means everything else in creation, God speaks into existence. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. It is, it's good, it's done. Let us make We are the ones who've got to say, let it be. Christ says, let it be. Mary says, let it be. We are the ones who've got to say, let it be. We are the ones who've got to say, let it be, for the only work that is said to be God's own work. Really fascinating. The only thing said to be God's own work, let us make a human being, we're the ones who've got to say, let it be. Okay? And that all comes out of the fact that it's trampling down death by death. Christ shows us a mode of life by dying as a human being which we can all enter into. Does that make sense? Are you with me in all of that? Okay. So that's the kind of stuff I've been finding. Actually, just one one further thing before I just turn to something else. Uh, God says, let us make a human being. Yeah? What does he do instead? What does he actually do? No, it says, God says, let us make a human being. What does he actually do? What does the text say? He makes males and females. Yeah? Males and females are not necessarily human beings. We've seen human beings is that which we're called to become by living a life of self-sacrificial love. He makes males and females. That's what he actually does. You know, he makes males and females in his image. Yeah? Why does he make males and females? If his goal is to make a human being, why does he make males and females? Here's, okay, this would be a talk for a whole other evening, okay? Next time I come back, I'll talk about males and females. But what, what, he, what I think is going on in that is that male and female is a horizon in which we first learn to live not for ourselves but for another. Through erotic love, we fall in love and we say, 
actually, this person is more important. Yeah? And I'm going to live for that person, not for myself. Now, this is really important. And that's why I wanted to mention it, even though to do it fully justice would take another evening. Um, for the early church, the paradigmatic form of holiness is martyrdom. Christ is the faithful and true martyr. Ignatius is a martyr. The saints are the martyrs. Okay? Once we enter into a post-Constantinian world, and martyrdom is no longer a reality, we have monasticism. And most of our saints are monastic saints. And from the beginning, monastic saints have understood, have understood monasticism as continuing the martyrdom of the early church. St. Athanasius, writing the life of St. Anthony, says he went into the desert in order to perform martyrdom, continuing the martyrdom. Yeah? Now what's really, really important here is that, yes, monasticism is a form of martyrdom, and we know all these monastic saints and so on. But that doesn't mean that married Christians, in order to achieve holiness, have to become like monks. It doesn't mean that. Marriage is a form of martyrdom. And by that I don't mean, how long do I have to put up with her? <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I mean, through erotic, ecstatic love, we come to learn that somebody else is more important and we live our life in view of that person, our children, and whatever else it might be. It's a form of martyrdom. That's why we have crowns on the, on the, on the married couple as they're being married. Yeah? They're martyrs. It's martyric crowns. So monasticism is a form of martyrdom. Marriage is a form of martyrdom. Both of them are forms of martyrdom. Don't assimilate marriage to monasticism. Don't, in marriage, try and live like monks or nuns. Okay? There's plenty of people who tell you that's what you should be doing. It's wrong. Period. Learn to live a martyric life in marriage. Is that clear? Okay, one further point, then I'll finish. I know I'm talking much longer than... than are you happy for me to talk for another, just another ten minutes? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> okay. I can talk forever, so just beware... Okay, I really can. As people here know, I really can. But I think this is a really important point just to finish off. So we've seen the question of how we know God in Christ. Opening the scriptures, breaking the bread, and all the things we saw with that. The centrality of the passion. Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being and shows us what it is to be human. Okay? Now the reason why those two points are so important to be very clear and to be nailed down as your starting points for understanding yourself, yourself in Christ, and so on, is because today we no longer see death. We no longer see death. And I'm talking about the modern Western world, and I'm counting Australia in the Western world. You count Australia in the Western world, yeah? Okay, just, just to make sure. Southern Hemisphere and North America, Western Europe, and all the rest of it, okay? In the, and I'm only talking about this context. Today we no longer see death. And what I mean by that is, just think about this. Until the middle of the 20th century, early part, middle of the 20th century, sometime around then, everybody would have had a brother or sister who died in childhood. Yeah, everybody. Life expectancy just shows that. Everybody would have had a parent who died before you reached adulthood. 
almost everyone. You know, this kind of life expectancy shows that. You would have had them in your house while they're on their deathbed for weeks or months or whatever it is while they're dying. You would have attended them. You would have had friends and neighbors come round to them. You would have been with them as they die and you would have stayed with their body in your house. You would have washed them. You would have prepared them. You would have read all the prayers over them. You would have had friends and neighbors coming round. You would have seen this whole liturgy of death. When I'm talking about seeing death, I mean this whole liturgy of death. Okay? Um, and you would have seen that probably once a month between your family, your friends, your neighbors, people in the town, people in the village. You would have seen that repeatedly. Okay? You would have then taken their bodies to church. You would have had them in church in an open casket for maybe one, two, three days, literally celebrated over the weekend with their bodies here in church. You would have entrusted this person to God this person lying here to God and then in, entrusted them to the earth. Okay? We all, we all would have seen that liturgy of death. Today, when somebody dies, in America especially, Western Europe, I'm sure, Australia as well, today when somebody dies, in fact, today when you die, you, there's really only two ways you can die today. You're either going to die in an accident or you're going to die in hospital. Yeah? car crash, whatever, plane crash, whatever. I'll get, I'll get into other kinds of death in a minute. You're either going to die by an accident or you're going to die in hospital. If you die peacefully at home, the police have to come to investigate. <laughs> Just think about it. The police have to come to investigate. What happened? Yeah? Has something nefarious gone on? What's happened here? Yeah? Because it's not usual now to die at home. So has there been some misplay going on between husband and wife or whatever? Yeah? Um, and, and that's true. The police have to come around to investigate now. You're going to either die in an accident or you die in hospital. And actually, you cannot die in a hospital. You have to be killed to die in a hospital. Yeah? You know, the, um, you, can, you go into hospital with a terminal disease or whatever it might be, and you can be kept alive indefinitely by the machines. Artificial lung, artificial kidney, artificial whatever, whatever it might be. And at some point, the decision's got to be made to switch the machine off. You've got to be killed to die today. Just think about that. There's a line in the book of Revelation where it says, in those days they will seek death and not be able to find it. Okay? Now today when you die or are killed, accident or in hospital, the body and the, and the family are separated as quickly as possible. You know, half an hour, whatever it might be, to mourn, but not so that the mourning becomes excessive. You're separated from the, from the body as quickly as possible. The body is then given over to the death professional, the mortician, who embalms the body and all the rest of it, and then the body in America, anyway, is displayed in a funeral home. And I kid you not, in America, they have pink lights in a funeral home to make the body look like it's alive. Yeah? So that you make a comment like, I've never seen them looking so good. Imagine yeah? <laughs> that. I've never seen them looking so good. Um, and then the body's disposed of. Yeah, and increasingly today in America, they don't even have the viewing of the body. Increasingly, you have what, what they call direct disposal. Yeah, you call up the funeral uh, company, 
They go and pick up the body from the, from the hospital. You may not even have been to the hospital while your mother's died or whatever. The funeral company go and pick up the body and they'll take it directly to the crematorium and you go and pick up the ashes. Yeah? It's direct disposal. Okay? That's what's happening in America today, increasing the, the practice. And even when we've got you know, still funeral services or cremation services, what we actually do is we come to, in America anyway, they come together at a later date without the body being there at a time of mutual convenience to, to, have, to celebrate their life. Yeah? And just think what an ambiguous attitude towards the body that shows. Yeah? Um, Father Tom put it very well. He said at one point, he said, we live today, we live as hedonists and die as Platonists. Okay? We spend our whole life living for the body, and indeed we do. Yeah? We exercise more today than ever before. We, how, much time, how much time and attention do we spend being concerned about the food that we eat so that our body can be healthy? More than ever before. We are more preoccupied with our body today than ever before. We live as hedonists. And then as soon as we die, we say, well, the body's not really them. Dispose of it. Let's come together without the body being there and celebrate their life. Yeah? So that's what I mean by saying we do not see death today. And not seeing death, we've got seeing all sorts of other kind of deaths. We have cartoon death in computer games. We have cartoon death in Hollywood films. And there is abysmal death going on in the world around us. You know, how many people are dying? How many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are dying from hunger, from starvation, from war, from natural calamity, from all those different things? Refugee camps and all the rest of it. Horrific. But we only see it on television screen. Yeah? We do not actually see death. And as Joseph Stalin said, you know, one death is a tragedy, a hundred thousand deaths is a statistics. You can't deal with it. Okay? We do not see death today. Is that clear now what I mean by that? I think that that's the most radical change ever in human existence. Yeah? I'd, I'd like to exaggerate, but I don't think I'm exaggerating this time. Every culture throughout the whole of history had to deal with death in an immediate way. Whatever kind of rituals they developed for it, whether like the Vikings or the Chinese or whatever, they had to deal with death in an immediate family way. We don't. Yeah? We don't see death today. Now, if everything I've been saying this evening is true, and that's for you to judge, if everything I've been saying this evening is true, that Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being... If we don't see death, we don't see God. It's a direct equation. If we don't see death, we don't see God. If we don't see death, and we don't, then we've got no knowledge, no basis for knowing our lives are transitory. We've got no way of understanding the transcendence enacted in death. Our whole life becomes totally imminent. It's about this body, this breath, and how long I can extend it. Yeah? If we don't see death, we don't see God. That's the most, that, I think, is our most radical challenge today. <coughs> all the things about consumerism, consumptionism, materialism, secularism, all those different other isms that we think we are facing in today's Western world, I think are simply offshoots of the fact that we don't see death. The sexual revolution is an offshoot of the fact that we don't see death. 
all the other kind of things. You know, our whole life becomes totally imminent about this breath, this body, and all the things I can do or be or whatever with this body insofar as I can. Yeah? That, I think, is our biggest challenge today. And I would suggest that what we should think about doing in all of this is taking back death, just like we took back birth. Middle of the 20th century, birth was also an incredibly hospitalized, medicalized condition. You know, the woman was medicated with an epidural up to her eyelids, completely separated from the experience of birth. The father, the parent, the, the relatives could not be there while she's giving birth and all the rest of it. It's done totally by the medical profession um, with, with the woman herself divorced from the, from the passion of giving birth to, to life. Yeah? We've, took, we've taken back birth. We have done. We're now, ab- we're now able to, fathers are able to be with their wives as they're giving birth. You're able to give birth at home. You're able to give birth without being drugged. I mean, you know, all these different things. We've taken back birth. We've also got to take back death. The desacralization of the ends of life lead to the hedonization of life. No doubt about it. If we desacralize the ends, we've got no basis for knowing God. Okay? And then we just become totally hedonistic with regard to our body. We've got to take back death. Okay? I'll leave you with that sobering thought. Okay, thank you. It is it's 25 past nine. Um, I, I said I was going to speak till what, nine o'clock or something, but I find it really difficult to stop speaking. And I did ask you for that matter. Um, I've also asked you plenty of questions, and there have been times when people have asked me questions. Um, we can have some time for questions. I'm happy to take questions. Or we can t- break up and talk informally as you like. Um, if anybody wants questions... And what I really like is no, no questions, because it either means one of two things. Either it means that everything I've said has been totally clear and intelligible and straightforward, and nobody's got any questions about anything, or it means that everything was totally unintelligible, and you haven't understood a word of what I've been saying for the last two hours, and you've got no room for questions. Okay, question way at the back. Um, I saw my father die. Mm-hmm. You said before that we don't see people die. Yeah, right. I've all, I also, um, my, my earliest memory is my grandfather's funeral, being with him as he died and all the rest of it. When I said that, I was using a particular kind of rhetoric to show where the rest of the world is today and where we are increasingly going ourselves. Now, clearly... That is a generalization, and we, we still have that experience with us. Let's hold on to it. Okay? Okay. There's also a lot that one would have to say about death. If you turn over the page and look at the quotation at the top of page, uh, quotation number seven at the top of page two, because it's really important. Okay, if, if I. I'd be happy to talk till, till midnight to get through everything else that needs to be said about death. But I think what I would want to say is, is summed up in the, the, the um, passage from John of Damascus, St. John of Damascus, used in the funeral service, where it says, I weep and I wail when I think upon death, and behold our beauty, fashioned after the image of God, 
lying in the tomb, disfigured, dishonored, bereft of form. Okay? I weep and I wail. You know, that's our reaction. Okay? But then it carries on. Oh, marvel, or paradoxon in Greek. What is this mysterion? Why have, which befalls us? Why have we been given over unto corruption? Why have we been wedded to death? Of a truth as it is written by the command of God who gives the departed rest. So do you remember how we, we, from the synoptic gospels to the gospel of John, in the night in which he was given up, no rather gave himself up, the movement we had to do from one to the other, we have to do the same movement with seeing death. On the one hand, I weep and I wail. Right and proper reaction. But that reaction has got to be transcended in this O marvel, this mystery which befalls us. Okay? Movement from one to the other. Seeing it within the economy of God. Okay? And there's a whole lot that would need to be said about that in order to understand what it means fully to see death. But I, I would hope that you've got an intuition of what I was trying to say in that. Somebody else went back there to question? Why does it have to be physical death in, like in which you see God? Like why does it have to be actual death? Don't you see God and people dying to themselves and sacrificing themselves for each other? Yeah, okay. Um, so we start off our transition from Adam to Christ. Basically what we're talking about here is a movement from Adam to Christ, yes? We come into the world with the breath of life, egocentric, all the rest of it. We, we turn away from that and say, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to live by, by taking up the cross voluntarily dying in Christ and so on. Okay? And we start to do that and we learn how to do that. But the interesting thing is that and I don't know how else to put it but until our actual death we remain caught in the first person singular. Okay, what I mean by that is I can only say at the end of the day didn't I die well to myself today? It's still me who's doing it. I'm learning to do it but it's still me who's doing it. If I learn how to do that, then when I do finally die, I can say, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Okay? And then I finally become clay. And then I stop working. I'm no longer trying to die to myself. I'm dead. I'm weak. Now God can work. Yeah? So it is actually, baptism is a sacramental anticipation of our actual death. But we haven't yet died. We're learning to do it, but it's still me who's doing it. When I finally die, I'm no longer active. God is the one who's active. I'm no longer the creator. He's the creator. Yeah? And there's some really interesting passages in, the Father, in Scripture and the Fathers which point to that. So, for instance, quotation number 10 on your sheet. It's from the, Vespers, from the psalm we use at Vespers. It says, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. I think we always hear it backwards. We hear God creates us and gives us life, and eventually we'll die. But actually, it's the other way around. It says, God takes away our breath so that we die and become dust and earth and clay. And then he sends forth his spirit, and he says, and they are created. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it is, it's a future. They will be created. That comes at the end. Okay? So, 
We, we tend to think of God takes clay at the beginning and that we were clay at the beginning. I don't know about you, but I've never been clay. Yeah? We actually become clay when we die. That's when God takes a clay and creates us. To see someday, they will be created. Okay? So what starts in baptism, because it is always ever me that's doing it thereafter, will culminate in me finally saying, to thy hands I commend my spirit, I stop working, then God can finally work. So it does culminate in death. Just like the whole thing, as we saw, starts with Christ's death and victory over death by his death. Okay, can you speak loudly? Yeah. I didn't catch it. You don't, yeah. So, palliative care is an absolutely wonderful movement. Absolutely wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, 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 so palliative care is absolutely wonderful. It's the way we should go. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. So there are these movements which are, if you like, taking back death. Absolutely. Um, Oh, looking at all the kind of stuff we were just talking about. Life coming through death. Behold, dying we live. All those kind of things. Oh, but, you know, in a sense, absolutely, in a sense, the actual death, the physical death, the actual death of a person lying before you is really the great sacrament, yeah, of which baptism is an anticipation and sacramental anticipation, the reality of it, and also Eucharist is also, you know, part of that. You're able to drink the cup I'm about to drink of, referring to the passion, yeah? So what you are called upon to do in that is to, if you like, minister at that sacrament as that person passes over. And there's so much that could be said about that, but yeah, that's, another, that's another talk. But the palliative care is absolutely wonderful. And it's the kind of thing we should be doing. Um, and it's the kind of thing we're going to have to be doing. At the moment, something like 80% of all health care costs in America go on the last four or five months of life. Yeah, which is yeah, it's just horrific when you think about it. You know, we've got the machines which can keep people alive. Let's keep them alive as long as they possibly can, as possibly can, and do everything we can to do that. 80% of all healthcare costs go on that. To the, you know, if we think we've got a problem now, wait for another 20 or 30 years, and the economic problem is going to be absolutely huge. We had better take back death and learn how to, and I'm not talking euthanasia, but learn how to minister with people as they die. Yeah, we better reconcile ourselves to the fact that we are mortal and will die. Διευχών των Αγίων Πατέρων ημών, Κύριοι Ιησού Χριστέ, ο Θεός ελέησον και σώσον ημάς. Αμήν. Αμήν.